Welcome to the HVMN Podcast. What we do with our bodies today becomes the foundation of who we are tomorrow. This is Health via Modern Nutrition. In this episode, we welcome Dr. Andy Fung. Jeff, take it away. Dr. Andy Fung, really good to have you on the HVMN Podcast. Oh, Jeff, it's amazing. No, it's uh, always fun and, and, and positive to discuss with like-minded, also unlike-minded folks that are interested in human performance, health, and helping people just live better lives. So I think it's always a productive conversation. And I know that you've been on other podcasts and it came up on Zill, our producer's radar, in terms of how you articulate and, and some of the ideas that you have. So excited to dive in and cover some ground here. But for folks who don't know your background, can we get a quick survey on your formal training, your experience as a medical practitioner, and what your focus is for today? Sure. I'm a medical doctor. I'm in North Carolina, Raleigh area. Before going to medical school, I was in the Navy for three years, then went to college, then medicine, then did residency, board certified in family medicine, graduated in residency in 2010, and started practicing medicine. And then throughout that whole time, you know, my grandmother was diagnosed and treated with type 2 diabetes, eventually ended on insulin injection, and she had Alzheimer's also. And then in the back of my mind, I'm like, hey, this family history of diabetes here, it goes inside the family, you know, it travels in the family. You're not overweight, but you certainly carry like 15, 20 pounds over. Hey, you know, make sure you do something. And so we are very well trained into, hey, you know, if you want to lose weight, just eat a little bit less and exercise a little bit more. And then so for those seven years, I try to do what everyone been told. Hey, eat less, move more, eat in moderation. And then in 2016, I was diagnosed with prediabetes, A1C at 5.8. And I am like 5.8. Uh, and then at 170 pounds, my BMI was like 26.5. And then most people would say, okay, which finger of the left arm do you want a BMI of 26? Because that's what I want. And I'm like, look, my BMI is 26. I'm pre-diabetic and I'm exercising and I'm eating right. And then it's not working. So that's when I came across a video by Dr. Jason Fung saying, hey, you can reverse diabetes. And then in the back of my mind, I was like, wait, time out. You know, I just graduated, quote unquote, brand new doctor. Everything is up to date. Check out my certificate. It's still stamped saying (laughs) I'm board certified. Hey, what's going on here? How come he said you can reverse diabetes? But what we've been told is the chronic progressive disease. And here I am staring with prediabetes in the face. One uh, the traditional medicine said, you're doomed. And then someone else said, no, you're not. And then so I started my journey back was like, okay, maybe I need to listen to him to see what he has to say. And then eventually it ended up on the topic of insulin. And then in my mind was like, we all know, you know, insulin will make anyone obese if you give yourself the shot. If you have diabetes long enough, we all end up on insulin. And once you're on insulin, you get more and more overweight. Right. It's a very strong, but an anabolic hormone. So sometimes bodybuilders, for example, will be taking insulin to help gain mass. Yes. But in the back of my mind, it was like, wait, Andy, you're not on insulin. What's wrong with you then? Right. And then so when he came across the topic of the three macros, you know, carb, protein, and fat, and the difference in the amount of insulin that each food group releases. And then that was when the connection was made. 
because I am ethnically Asian and you know, Chinese, and then we eat a lot of rice, we eat lots of noodle, and we have lots of those uh, sweet tea. They don't call it sweet tea; they say like sweet sugar juice. And then so I was like, oh, no wonder I can't lose the weight because of all the sweet and sugar stuff that I eat. And then that's when my journey started. Almost every one of us, I think, that are sensible and thoughtful, have this point where. Am I turning into a charlatan? Am I turning into pseudoscience? I think probably all of us had that moment where it's like, okay, I am veering off of traditional medical consensus, right? I mean, there's very credible, reputable professors who talk about a mixed diet and making sure you have the carbohydrate and all of this stuff. And obviously, you come from that training and background. You're a formal MD, board certified. Yeah, that's right. What was your thought process as you're looking at kind of these trajectories? Like you could kind of stick with the status quo and it wasn't working for you personally. Or did you feel like you're being a real scientist and actually looking at data and question the dogma? Can you walk us through that thought process? When I look back, I was like, okay, I understand insulin. I understand carbohydrate drives insulin. So I said, but does it really work? So what I had to do was I have to put myself on it first. Okay. I have to say, okay, you're not going to eat rice anymore. You're going to go home and, and have your veg and have your meat. And then, you know, if you're not hungry, don't eat. And then so within three months, I dropped like 25 pounds and I went back and checked my A1C. It's 5.4. And then so now I was like, okay. But in the meantime, I've been learning more and more. So after three months, I start questioning myself. I'm like, Andy, doing the day job, you write people pills and push shots and all to treat their type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and everything in between. And here is something that works for you. What should you do? <laughs> I was at a crossroad of like, you know, maybe I should not say anything. Maybe I should just continue to write the medicine because it's so much easy. You know, it's, it's really easy. You know, if your blood pressure is high already uh, and you're on one medicine, we either increase the dose or we add another one. If your diabetes is high, it's easy. You know, A1C is high. We either, if you're on three medicine or already, we can add insulin. So it's really, really easy from that point of view. But then I was like, look, but they are getting worse. You know, they are getting fatter by the day you know their blood pressure get worse by the day so i started really slowly just with type 2 diabetes just with people who are obese trying to push low carb and say yeah. hey you know i understand that i wrote you insulin before <laughs> i understand i wrote you diabetic medicine before but man i learned something new here you know would you like to start on this i think i can help you and then one person you know they go on they start losing weight and now it's you and another patient and another patient another patient you're like wow this is amazing and while you're doing all this I think once you go in, you're, you're not coming out. One, you, you check out one rabbit hole and then you go in another one. And the next one was like, what? Obesity or the standard American diet will also drive ADHD because it's kind of a metabolic instant resistance syndrome of the brain. And mm. low carb intermittent fasting will also fix that too. It's just one thing after the next. So the journey is really, really amazing. But at the same time, it's a lot of work that we have to do. You know, we, we see patients, we get like 20 minutes per patient at most. And if you spend all the time talking, who's going to, when are you going to do the documentation? Yep. So you bring the work home, Yeah. which is sad, but that's what you have to do. You know, I think it sounds like a very 
interesting trajectory and matches a lot of the experiences I've had speaking with MDs and medical practitioners as they go through the personal journey through their training and then through working with patients and seeing how the interventions affected their patients. And I think the end goal for all of us is that we want our patients and people in society to be healthier. And I think you just see the experiment in your face as opposed to from a textbook. But I think what I am excited and optimistic is, is that I think the dogma is shifting. I think you see a lot more randomized controlled trials backing the observations on the clinic side. So I think you see the Verta Health studies showing that ketogenic diet, low-carb diets are very potent for controlling type 2 diabetes. And I think the data and the research is going to emerge even more. So I don't think this is like, hey, we're just talking pseudoscience. This is well-documented, and I think there's a very quickly growing corpus of data justifying and providing evidence for some of these new interventional suggestions and recommendations. And I think just within the last few months, you had ADA update their nutritional guidelines, incorporate low-carbohydrate and ketogenic diets as part of a nutritional adjunct. So I think we're starting to see the world change. We are seeing change. Sometimes you wonder, like, why is it so slow? I've been doing this for almost three years now, and then people are still coming by and say, hey, Dr. Fung, you know, you're the first one to tell me that the carbohydrate in our food is not helpful. And I'm like, what do you mean? I hear it every day. You know, I hear it on Twitter. I hear yeah. it on Facebook groups. But how come we don't hear it in the mainstream media? Yeah. And I'm not really sure who is pushing the agenda of, for instance, you know, with Verda and their study, you don't see giant news world or organizations coming out and say, hey, look, you know, we can put type 2 diabetes in remission at two years at 60%. Do you hear that? I don't see that broadcast coming out. Yeah, it's only on nutritional Twitter where, it, <laughs> I mean, that's we can talk about that where that's a little cluster of craziness in of itself. But yeah, it's not very well known. And I think if a pill was able to resolve diabetes at a 60% rate, that would be a blockbuster drug, which is, I think, a very interesting comp in terms of the level of publicity or knowledge of something that is, is that profound. It is. The idea is that we in America are so sick as a society. It came out at UNC, a school of medicine. 88% of adults in America have metabolic syndrome. What does that mean? Yeah, 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. And then when you look around, you know, you start seeing people who might not be overweight, like look very badly, but they have these pot bellies. And yeah. that is like waiting to happen. Yeah, it might be helpful for our listeners, actually, because I think we've talked about metabolic syndrome. What are the key quantitative markers that diagnose one that that defines metabolic syndrome. Sure. Yeah. So metabolic syndrome, it comes in five things. First is we call them central obesity, carrying too much weight in the middle of the body, uh, followed by elevated blood pressure, and then impaired fasting glucose first thing in the morning, and high triglyceride and low HDL. You know, if you have three out of the five, it's you have metabolic syndrome. But it's not necessarily to have all three or all three out of the five to have metabolic syndrome. If you just have one of the five, you're going to walk towards that two out of five, three out of five, and it'll come. Yep. And it will come very slowly. And because it comes so slow that people will see like, hey, you know, uh, I just carry a little bit extra weight in the middle. I should be okay. And next thing you know, you know, your triglycerides are going up. And then it it's just one add on to the next. And we know what drives metabolic syndrome, which is insulin. And then if we fix the insulin problem, actually, it's not 
as hyperinsulinemia or insulin resistance, it depends on who you talk with. And if you fix that with low carb and intermittent fasting, it literally fix the root cause of metabolic syndrome and yep. then you don't have to deal with a lot of other problems that comes with it. Obviously in the low carb community, we talk about insulin as this terrible thing. I think people that are aware and, and know about ketogenic diet or low carb lifestyles have probably have heard about, you know, wanting That's to right. reduce insulin load. It might be refreshing to talk about why you'd want some insulin or what would That's be right. a useful role it. of insulin. For example, to gain mass and for athletic performance, perhaps, you'd want healthy, acute loads of insulin to be able to be anabolic and grow mass and recover. Can we break down the good uses or the good roles of insulin versus some of the environmental variables that make insulin harmful? Right. I think that's like an interesting thing to just tease into a little bit more deeply if one has a first level understanding that I think most people in our audience have at this point. Insulin is a growth hormone. It lets the body grow. It lets the body build. The thing is that you must have insulin for you to survive. If you don't have insulin, you will die. You cannot metabolize food and then you will die. And so that is type 1 diabetes. If you have type 1 diabetes where you have zero insulin, you will die. And then so to keep type 1 diabetes alive, we do have to give them insulin, like exogenous injectable insulin. What was the predicted lifespan i mean i'm not super yeah i'm not i'm not very deep on the literature there but yeah like people would not make it past their teens or 20s right people would just waste away yeah if you don't have insulin you literally will waste away before 1921 you know yeah but since then we had insulin and when insulin came out we said look we have a cure all for diabetes now everybody can just go on insulin but type 2 diabetes they actually have too much insulin. So that's the difference between too much and too little. So where we want is we want the sweet spot. So people say, well, what is the sweet spot for insulin? Right. Generally, less than five. So a fasting insulin should be less than five. Yeah. And, and if you check most people's fasting insulin, it will be higher than five. Yeah. So that's the sweet spot for insulin. And I think what you said is actually not obvious, right? Like, Saying that type 2 diabetes is a disease of too much insulin is actually would be controversial in some circles because the treatment of choice is more insulin. (laughs) So I I think that's actually a subtle point. And I would say that probably like the more subtle definition, at least in some circles, would be type 2 diabetes is a problem of, of, of too much sugar, which you would control with adding exogenous insulin. I think that is the core question and debate between the two camps, if you were to isolate line in the sand. When people have type 2 diabetes, when their sugar are very high at the tail end of it, is that they actually don't have high insulin. Sorry, type 2 diabetes, when you give insulin at the tail end of type 2 diabetes, it's because the insulin that the body is making, the pancreas is making, the body stop responding to the insulin. Mm-hmm. So if you were to measure type 2 diabetics insulin level, it's, they have it for so long, they literally kill the pancreas, they will still make insulin. Yes. And you can check the C-peptide level, and that will still be there. Yep. So the question is, well, if they are making insulin, then why doesn't that insulin work? Why do we have to give them more insulin? Because For the, the same the, response. 
the same response. Yeah. So because because the insulin had been so high, the receptors throughout the cells in the body, like the muscle, the liver, and all that, will literally downgrade, remove the insulin receptors. So you can send as much insulin out, but there's no receptors to bind to it. You can't trigger the biological process where you can let the sugar go in. It makes so much sense from a first principle systems or engineering approach, right? It's just like, because we have more and more baseline insulin, your body builds resistance to insulin, like it builds up resistance to caffeine, stimulants, virtually any exogenous compound, there's some resistance buildup and insulin is no special, no different. And you have less and less of an adaptive response given the same level of signal. And I think that's the flywheel that makes so much sense from an engineer's point of view. You know, that's from my point of view is that's how you would design a system. And maybe I just don't have those bad habits in terms of just accepting that. No, because, you know, we'll, we'll pretend, right? If if the body said, well, I'm going to listen to insulin all the time and insulin is an anabolic steroid, you know, anabolic meaning you're going to get bigger and bigger. So if you have more insulin, you're going to get really, really, really big. Yeah. And then if you think about in the wire, if you get so, so big, uh, some, <laughs> some, something will come and eat you. Yeah. So because it's actually a protective mechanism. But what happens that, you know, I tell people the joke is that we're not in the wild anymore. We don't sleep, you know, under the bushes anymore. Right. And then because the way we eat, you know, we have lots and lots of carbohydrate and we just don't eat three carbohydrate meals a day. You know, yep. when I was growing up, you know, I would eat three carbohydrate meals a day and you say, where's my snack? It's not there. So while you're not eating, your insulin can come down because continue high insulin actually drives insulin resistance. But you say, well, what's wrong with Americans? We're like, well, because, you know, we eat three giant carbohydrate meals a day. And then between those meals, we have giant carbohydrate snacks throughout the day. So literally, you know, you have these high insulin, like 16, 18 hours a day. Yep. And the body will say, look, you know, I, I can't let all this insulin tell me to get bigger and bigger because we'll be in trouble you know, as far as if I'm still in the wild. But I think the good news is that you can make pretty acute changes that are pretty impactful on these biomarkers. I need to look at my exact blood work, but I think when I was doing a, an experiment, I was doing sort of a normal diet and then a hard ketogenic fasted protocol. And I believe my insulin was generally healthy. So it wasn't super yeah. high. Maybe it's probably around five. And then yeah. I was able to drop it to like one or two units after, you know, three, four, five, I think, I think it's about a six week ketogenic diet fasting period, which is good news, right? That the body's adaptive and you can shift pretty quickly. I, I think luckily I probably didn't have years and years of abusing my system of carbohydrate to get to a point that it might take longer to correct. But I was decently surprised to see how quick some of these interventions could work. Generally speaking, if we restrict carbohydrate, the body will start burning fat within like two, three days slowly. And then the speed picks up by about 10 days. But usually within three weeks of carbohydrate restriction, your insulin will be really, really low and then you'll be burning fat. Yeah. And so people are like, well, what's the problem? Why can't the insulin be high and I'll be burning fat too? <laughs> the answer is you can't. The opposing that, forces, literally. That's yeah. right. You know, so, so if the insulin is high, it's said, like, look, you know, you need to lay down fat. The key goes, if you're laying down fat, you ain't going to burn any fat. And then so that's why we have a cat 
the insulin really low for people who are overweight or have metabolic syndrome for them to burn off, especially the visceral fat, you know, the fat gut. Maybe let's go one level deeper. So insulin halts lipolysis and you have the opposing hormone glucagon that releases glucose and supports that fatty acid metabolism, right? And I think what you're describing is that literally insulin is the signal that your body perceives that halts lipolysis. Yes. So for instance, if someone who comes to see me and they are overweight and then I'm like, okay, so if you're overweight, then we need to get you to lose the weight. So in order to lose the weight, we have to lower your basal insulin level. And then the only way to lower your basal insulin level is to stop the carbohydrate because carbohydrate relative to protein and fat drives the insulin the highest. Mm-hmm. So first, it's get your carbohydrate down to get your insulin down. And once your insulin down, your body will start burning fat. So people say, that's all I need to do? I said, not exactly. So people are like, what's the problem? Can I eat low-carbohydrate meal 24-7 and lose this fatness? I said, there's no way you're going to lose that fatness because even though when the insulin is down, you're going to burn fat. You're going to burn the exogenous or the fat you just eaten before the body will burn the store body fat. Mm-hmm. So technically speaking, there are really no food you can eat to lose weight. You really have to stop eating. So that's called intermittent fasting. And in America, we eat 18 hours, 16, 18 hours during the day. So that's why we are not burning any fat yeah. at all. I think that's a good point. And I think this might be a little bit in the weeds in the nutritional Twitter land where to give people that might not be following the discussion as closely, there's this big, I would say one school of thought that's more calories in, calories out, and then is more one of the, the carbohydrate insulin model, which is based on insulin as one of the primary mediators of weight gain and weight loss. And I think what you described is quite nice, which is that it's really both. You need to control your hormonal response and you also need to control your calorie count as well. I mean, I would say that most scientists I talk to from either of those camps also agree, but I think there's that kind of academic, very, very technical differences where they're arguing what is more important than the other. And I think there's some rationale of why you'd want to have a hierarchy of what is a more important driver. For example, I think folks on the ketogenic school would say that you suppress appetite with a ketogenic diet, and that would lead to lower caloric consumption, which kind of resolves the calorie in, calorie out kind of model. But I think that is overly technical and might not be actually practical, which, which I think you're saying is that reduce the carb intake, but also don't like just eat pounds of fat as well. I mean, you need to also have a little bit of a caloric deficit. Calorie in, calories out, make it really, really easy to tell the patient. So if the patient is overweight or obese, all you have to do is, hey, you know, eat a little bit less of what you eat. And then if you burn a little bit more of what you store, you'll lose weight. And that has failed. And the catch is it does work but it only works temporary. And because it, it works, and when it stops working, then the doctors start looking at the patient and say, hey, you dropped that 50 pounds. What's going on now? You're gaining it back. Are you slacking again? Yeah, you're lying to me. They don't trust the patient, right? No. Yeah, so I think it's having both, right? You need also the hormonal response, the insulin control as well. If we eat the standard American diet, the insulin is quite high. If we just reduce the portion of that we eat, 
Yes, the insulin is lower, but it's not going to get to three to four. Okay, you can't get it to three to four. Yeah. And then because you can't get this low, because the other function of insulin is that insulin actually determines our basal metabolic rate. What it really means is insulin determines how much food energy the body's going to use to burn. And then so if you reducing the food that you eat. And then you try to increase the amount of exercise you do, and the insulin is still high, your body's going to say, look, what food is coming in is not meeting the caloric expenditure. Mm. So I'm going to lower my basal metabolic rate. So instead of burning, quote, 2,000 calories, you're not going to burn 2,000 calories six months later. Yeah, I think that's a good way to articulate it. It's, it's, you're giving your body very conflicting signals that wouldn't necessarily be received in a more natural food environment, right? It's like a very weird artificial state to have high insulin response with a caloric deficit. Yes. It's very opposite signals. It's confusing the body and it doesn't work in the, it's called the free living environment. So if you live in a house where you buy your own food uh, versus if you live in the lab where they control your food, you know, so, so if we are living in cages, yes, you can restrict calorie and it works but we don't live in cages you know we have like what 320 million of us um not all of us are imprisoned you know so that's why it doesn't work you know? i think for the 88 percent of americans that have metabolic syndrome i think the general guideline of reducing insulin load through carbo reducing carbohydrate is very very sensible right it's like a very easy understandable first step to resolve some of those health risks and you know fasting is basically a more restrictive version of not eating carbohydrates, right? Just eating That's nothing. That's right. It's like nothing. But I think probably a larger percentage of our audience are metabolically healthy and are looking to optimize. I'm curious in terms of your experience, whether personally or your clients, are you mainly dealing with folks with metabolic issues or just general health issues? Or do you have also have some insight into people that are more on the healthy side looking to optimize? I don't have too many people on the healthy side, but I can talk about myself. You know, after I dropped like 20 some pounds, you know, start hearing more. And then I knew that, hey, exercise doesn't help you lose weight, but uh, but exercise can help you build your muscle strength. Yep. And then so I start picking up exercise. And then so I'm actually kind of proud of myself. I can do like 20 pull-ups on the monkey bar now. And I, I couldn't do it before. So even when you're in the, in the Navy, you had, so like I think <laughs> I, I remember I looked at this actually very recently, 23 pull-ups for... A man is considered 100 out of 100 score on the Marine Corps fitness test. But the Navy was like, I left the Navy in like 1999. You know what I mean? Like now, 20 years later, I can do about 20. I mean, how much were you doing for your fitness <laughs> test in the Navy? We didn't do pull-up back then. But um, from <laughs> okay. what I know is that if you want to be a Navy SEALs candidate, all you have to do is like do six pull-ups. That's it. And I was like, okay, I mean, knowing a, a little bit about that, I mean, obviously six is kind of like the minute of the minute right, to even right. qualify right. to like even do the pre-fitness screen of the pre-fitness screen. Obviously, the folks in special operations are doing much more than six pull-ups. I, I think in the health part, I talk more about autophagy or intermittent fasting as a promotion of health. Because when we're eating, uh, whether we're eating carbohydrate, we eat protein, we eat fat, or a mixture of all the foods, when food goes in, it actually, quote, stresses out the body too. Think of the blood vessels and the vein and everything else as a row. You know, now you're going to put all this 
food, depending on what you call it, you know, in the row. And you have to incorporate that food somewhere. You have to put it somewhere, whether it's amino acid or fatty acid or glucose. You have to put it somewhere. So the key goes is that, well, then how does intermittent fasting help you? Because if you're not putting anything in the row, there's no food, you know, you know. But the key goes that in the blood, the body always needs about five grams of glucose for the brain, for the red blood cells, for and for the kidney to be alive because they are kind of obligate glucose users, but not the brain. The brain need about 20% of it as, as glucose. The other 80 can, and can come from fat or ketones. Ketones, yeah. So the key goes is like this. So, well, how does fasting help me then? So what happens is when you're not eating, the body will say, hey, I need some glucose here, but my glycogen is gone. So what happens is that the body starts going and tearing or breaking down the damage or, or the or the protein that would have been in excess to kind of clean up the area and then turn those proteins back into amino acid and, and turn those amino acids back into glucose called the novel gluconeogenesis to keep the glucose level stable. Mm-hmm. But the next time when you eat, then you can say, hey, look, you know, the area that was damaged, I removed most of that junk, I turned it to sugar, I burned it off already, so now I can repair that area. So that is like autophagy or cell repair, it goes by many names. And when you repair an area that is damaged, now you're actually fixing the problem. So that would be like, so in the performance part, then I would say, you know, we do need some fasting because when we're fasting, we get insulin really low, we can repair the damaged area. And when we feed again, we can repair that area. I think that's, I would say, a relatively, I think, active area of research. How would one incorporate fasting for performance use case? Because I think it's very nuanced to prescribe a ketogenic diet for a performance athlete. There's a huge role of carbohydrates as a fuel. And I think, you know, there are different schools of thought with like, you know, Volokh and Finney's work with ketogenic diets for some aspects of performance. But I think it's by no means as strong of a case as something of fasting ketogenic diet for type 2 diabetes. I think that is a very, very clear story, a very, very clear mechanism. I think from a performance perspective, I think that's like a really an interesting new area of research. And I think I just want to make sure that the low carb world doesn't overstate its claims on the performance side of the field, because for a lot of performance athletes, you're not optimizing for longevity. I mean, the, the activities they are doing are very, very tough. It's so like That's- it's a kind of orthogonal. I think the, the endpoints is a very different process to optimize for how many years that you're quote unquote healthy versus I want to win an Olympic gold medal. What can I do <laughs> to like push my body this super hard for the next two years to get me there? And those are very two different goals. No, they are very different. Even if you're trying to win the Olympic gold medal, but, but the key goes is that if you want to do like, I wouldn't say like ketogenic diet, but at least like low carb, right? If you reduce the amount of carb you eat or those sugar gels that you use, it's going to have to take time for your body to ramp up fat burning. So if you say, look, tomorrow I'm going to uh, actually make it up. Like in two weeks, I want to go out and win a gold medal and be in carb loading forever. Don't do it because it's not going to work. I mean, it's going to take like months to at least get some fat adapted. 
And then they also talking something carb loading strategies. You know, yeah. sometimes you might need a little bit here and you might need a little bit there to get optimized. So no, I mean carb is not all bad, but but the key goes it's but those athletes, generally speaking, they are insulin sensitive because they are very young. Yep. But what I'm talking to my patients is that no, they are not trying to win gold medals. You know, they hauling like 50 pounds, 100 pounds too much. Yep. And then so it's really not for them. You know, these carb loading stuff is really not for them. It, it's for these people who are very young. Use it as a tool for the right place in the right time, which I think is is kind of best practice as we work with different athletes and different groups in terms of how, you know, you can use exogenous ketones, something that, you know, we're, we're very deeply involved with, or exogenous carbohydrates like sugar gels and all that stuff. Yes. That might be an interesting segue. I'm curious in terms of, have you had any experience with exogenous ketones? Obviously, we talked a lot about endogenous ketosis, or essentially what I mean by that is essentially we're talking about low carbohydrate, low insulin states, and as a side effect of that, you're oftentimes inducing ketosis and doing that in a natural physiological process through ketogenesis. Yes. I think that's like a very interesting area of research, how ketones themselves could be an interesting signaling metabolite for different pathways. So we can either go down that route or talk mm -hmm. about exogenous ketones and if you have experience or thoughts in that route. I haven't had any clinic experience with exogenous ketones. Mm -hmm. It was tempted to say because there was a lady who has dementia. You know, a lady with dementia came with with husband, obviously with metabolic syndrome, you know, but no diabetes. You know, again, you don't have to have diabetes to have dementia. It, it's in, it's on the insulin resistance spectrum. Yep. So I knew that if I can get her carbohydrate lower, she will basically start burning fat. And when you're burning fat is that fatty acids do not cross the blood-brain barrier or very difficult. So what happens is the liver would convert that fatty acid back into ketone and ketone bodies are more soluble than it can cross the blood-brain barrier. Mm -hmm. so, so she said, well, why are you trying to do that? Because from what we know, from at least direction of what we know about dementia is that it is an energy crisis there is not enough energy going to the brain. And then people are like, wait, what do you mean there's not enough energy? They eat all this food and look, they are overweight. How come they don't have energy? It's because of the years and years of high carbohydrate diet, the blood-brain barrier has down-regulated the receptors for the insulin. So insulin can no longer go to the brain. Well, if insulin cannot go to the brain, then what happened? Insulin is an anabolic steroid. Insulin help things grow. Well, if you don't have insulin in the brain, how are you going to grow neurons? How are you going to grow connections? You can't. Right. And so if you can't grow that, then your brain going to shrink. And so that's what dementia is. It's a shrinking brain. And people are like, well, but how can the sugar not go there? The sugar can, but if you don't have insulin, you can't incorporate it. And then so people are like, well, so how does ketone help then? So because ketone does not need insulin to open the door at the blood-brain barrier. So now you're switching the fuel source. So if you switch the fuel source, now the brain will say, look, there, there are ketones around that I can use. And if, you, if the brain, so now you're no longer in fuel crisis, so people would actually get better. 
And so, so in her case, I tried, but the family was like, oh, you know, Dr. Fong, she's too far gone. I'm like, what do you mean? Um, they, I'm like, well, she was talking with you guys last year. I think, you know, it might not be 100%, but I think we can help. But the family wasn't buying. But I did get somebody else who was having early cognitive decline, mm -hmm. basically before dementia. And he had prediabetes in A1C at 5.8 and then a central obesity, uh, high triglyceride, low HDL. And I said, you know what? I think I know why your brain is not working well. I think it's the insulin resistance of the brain because of your body habits and the way you eat. Let's get your weight down by the right way, not calorie restriction, but carbohydrate restriction to get your insulin down. And guess what? Before we started the low-carb intermittent fasting, he needed two chaperones to come with him to the visit because he would go off because he wasn't himself anymore. But after losing 40 pounds, he's driving himself to the practice. He doesn't need chaperone anymore. And, and people are like, well, what's the point? The point is, he's like 63. How long are you going to live with this problem? If you don't fix the root cause, the next thing he'll know is that he'll go to a nursing home. And then there might be wet floor. He will trip. Now he's going to break his hip. And he's going to break his spine. Yeah. He's going to be suffering. It's terrible. It's a bad place to be if people have sort of given up on you being a functional person member of society right it's like okay we're gonna park you on the side and wait for you to die n equals one yeah, n equals one. case yeah. one single case study but in the community and i think just you know our customer base the listeners I, I think you hear a lot of these stories and hopefully we can do randomized controlled trials to really assess this in a formal more rigorous way but i think exactly i think what you articulated makes a lot of sense in terms of a mechanism describing a mechanism that like that makes sense right yeah. you have uh Insulin resistance of the brain, there's an energy deficit in neurons, and that might be prohibiting neurogenesis, or, or you're not allowing uh, neurons to you know, recover and, and heal and, and fix them, you know, repair themselves because of energy deficit. And can you rescue that function with an alternate fuel source, right? I think that's an active area of research that I know is ongoing today. And with N equals one, you know, at least for that person, he said, look, it's 100%, you know, and then <laughs> so for him, he literally went a lot in his brain, you know, for his brain. And you know, so how many of doctors would be willing to say, hey, you know, I think we can do something about this because most of us are still stuck in, hey, you know, you need to eat less, you need to move more because you're overweight and you're losing your mind. Yeah, you what know? is standard of care for early onset dementia? Is it just like you're screwed? Because all, all the neurological programs for pharmaceuticals don't really work, right? They don't. So this is what they say. Well, uh, so they'll give you something called a minimal status exam, you know, I think was like either 25 or 30 questions, I think it's, but anyway, it, it's a questionnaire test, and then see how well you do on it. Yeah. And if you don't do well, then say, well, you know, um, now you either have mild, you either your normal, mild, moderate, or severe cognitive decline. And then the flow sheet will be, well, if that is the case, well, make sure a few things are not causing your mild cognitive decline. So they said, well, we check your TSH. You know, most of it is time. It is normal. Make sure you check, uh, you know, RPR. Make sure don't they don't have syphilis because that will also <laughs> cause, you know, they're they trying to look for these zebras. And in the in front of them is if they just check insulin level, I promise them it's high. It will be more than 4.5 or 5. 
And then if that is the case, then you're like, wait, everything is normal, but my insulin is high. Then people are like, well, doctor, uh, what drug can I take to get my insulin down? And I'm like, I'm sorry, there's no drug to take to get your insulin down. There's lifestyle you can do to get your insulin down. So we as a society are very nearsighted or at least trying to say, hey, you know, give me a pill to fix whatever I have because there's only one solution. It's the pill or nothing. And unfortunately, these pills don't work. And then people just go downhill. And when they go downhill, they say, well, Dr. Bone, don't you know that there's no hope for them? So why do you even bother with them? Which is really sad. I think that's nicely articulated. And I think my increasing concern or question with a lot of these spot drugs is that the more you dive into the complex systems of how everything interconnects, and there's so much targets for potential pharmaceuticals and so much side effects that you're not targeting. And it's like very, very complicated. And it and it seems naive for humans to say, hey, we're going to target this one specific drug target. And we think that's the only thing it's going to hit. And we understand <laughs> all the myriad metabolic pathways that one target hits. It's very complicated. And I think there are people smarter than me that probably understand it very, very well. But I would still say that I think they would be arrogant to claim that they understand the 100% downstream effects of any specific drug and how it hits that target and understand all the side effect targets that it might be hitting as well. There are always two things, you know, there's the risk and the benefit. Yeah. And then so with a lot of these drugs uh, that you hear in the market, all you hear are benefits. You know, if you turn on six o'clock news, I don't watch it anymore, but sometimes, you know, channel surfing, you go by, you say, hey, you know, talk to your doctor about this. And I'm like, oh, don't talk to me because I want to hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> and then the key goes is that when they get to the side effects, they just read the darn thing, you know, take like half of the commercial just to read the side effects. Yeah. And I'm like, so you're expecting like a family doctor, like I am, that have 20 minute patients seeing about 18 to 20 patients a day to come home to research on this drug for you. Come on. And then so it, it's literally next to impossible. So as doctors, what do we do? We just listen to these organizations. Before this, the ADA was like, look, you know, if your patient diabetic, just eat whole grain, you know, eat whole grain, eat fresh fruit, eat lean meat. Uh, that's what they should be on. And then and it doesn't work. And then when it doesn't work, then they say, well, look, it is a progressive disease. And that's why, you know, you just you're doing the best you can. But the key goes, as doctors, we just don't have enough time to do a lot of these deep dives ourselves. Yeah. And so we listen to the these organizations. But unfortunately, a lot of the guideline that comes out from these organizations, I don't want to say it sounds like conspiracy, but but a lot of people who sit on there, you know, they get a lot of funding from industries that sometimes like, are you really there to write a guideline for all of us? Or are you there to write the guideline for the industry? And yeah. to me, it seems like it's for the industry. Yeah, I'm not a conspiracy theorist person myself, but I think it is important to realize that folks in academia, folks everywhere have biases. I have biases. I think it's more obvious of what my biases might or might not be, but I think it's it needs to be clearer that you see a lot of professors at very, very repeatable institutions and you look at their conflicts and disclaimer page, it's like, boom, they literally involve with 25 companies. Like, whoa, <laughs> this person, you know, has a lot, of, a lot of their hands and a lot of different money pockets. So 
not to say that you cannot be high integrity and be science driven with conflicts, but I think it's important to realize that we're all humans. There is that natural tendency for prejudice or ambition or impact that is important to digest as you look at the guidelines. And I think that just in the course of history, guidelines have never had a really good track record, unfortunately, (laughs) right? It's like (laughs) the guidelines have changed every 10 years and maybe our best practice today will change in 10 years. And I think I'm humbled enough to realize that if there is better science and better evidence of how I should be changing my diet for endpoints I care about, then I will change. And it doesn't sound like either of us are dogmatically religiously tied to low carb you know ketogenic diets per se but i think it's the evidence the body of evidence suggests that you know this is the right track given the entire everything that we've seen that's right you have to look at the totality of the evidence to judge it for yourself and and then the totality of the evidence is quite wide and then because of the time constraint that we have in the big medical systems, we just don't have a lot of time to learn it ourselves. And because you can't learn it yourself, then you just have to follow what the big organization has to say. And unfortunately, you know, sometimes it's just not the right thing. And and it might be the right thing, but the results might be very small. And if the results small, but then something is bigger, then why are they not saying something about that? It's hard to say. So people will accuse the low-carb people of, you know, we are all conspiracy theorists saying like, you know, the government is there to harm us, (laughs) the organization is here to harm us. But the key goes that there is a lot of money exchanging hands at the expense of the patient. You know, the 88% of the Americans are being, you know, robbed, I would say, if they are not being told that the low carb is actually what would be better for them than the standard American diet. Before we went on live, we were talking a little bit about the insurance payer pay structure and how you recently moved from a medical group to more of a private practice, not as fancy as per se a concierge doctor, uh-huh. but more in that style for folks who know what concierge doctors are. And I think, and I think you would agree with this, you know, correct me if you're wrong, but like, you know, drugs have their role. Drugs are important for a lot of use cases. It's not say don't take drugs when they're prescribed properly. But I think it goes back to your point. I think a lot of lifestyle intervention changes are so impactful because that's something you do every single day where a drug is like one spot change you do for like four weeks. That's right. And I think sounds like one of the things that I'd curious to get your thoughts on is in the traditional billing insurance system, doctors get paid for writing or encoding to an insurance code, right? You have that's to, right. You get you can bill the insurance company because you diagnose this and you bill this, or you can prescribe this drug, and boom, like you get yep. paid X amount of dollars for that. And then there's no code for low carb diet, right? There is called nutritional counseling. <laughs> it's kind of funny because nutritional counseling takes a long time, so. When I found out that, hey, you know, can you use low carb to help people with diabetes and weight problem and things like that, I went and talked to the company, the medical system and say, hey, you know, I would like to do a group teaching. I would want everybody to come in. I want you know, to introduce the concept of low carb to them, them to come on a specific like half day, you know, and I would just, you know, lay down the science, you know, like insulin, insulin resistance, what it does. And here's how we're going to fix it for you, because 20 minutes, you don't have time to explain all that. So we got there and I talked to them. They said, yes, Dr. Fung, 
we're going to pay you. I'm like, how much? They said, we're going to pay you $20 per patient. And I'm like, if I book six patients for the morning of Thursday, we'll make it up. And then they pay me $20 per patient. So I make $120 for the whole morning. So how am I supposed to pay my nurses? How am I supposed to keep my build up? How am I supposed to pay my malpractice insurance? There's no way you can do that. What would you get paid if you're prescribing metformin or insulin? So it's called E&M Co. Yeah. So uh, evaluation and management co. And so if you come in like the first time with like three chronic problems, but if you establish in care, it's going to run you to $300 by just writing the medicine. If you have diabetes, here's metformin. If you have high blood pressure, here's your lisinopril. If you have cholesterol, here's your Lipitor for you. And all you have to do is like the patient came in, 50-year-old came in with, uh, you know, with diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterol, blood pressure looks good. No need to change medicine. So, uh, A1C a little bit high. Let's start metformin. And then because the patient's diabetic, let's start them on a, on, a, on a stand to prevent heart disease. You can do that in like seven minutes. And then you get paid 200, 300 bucks in seven minutes. Yes. And so you crank it out, you know, you every 15 minutes because you take seven minutes to see the patient, write them a prescription, send the prescription to the pharmacy, and then you go to the next one. And, and the other sad thing goes like this too. So after you see the patient for diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterol, you write them the medicine. And at the end, they said, well, you know, my throat hurts too. Can you look into it too? And then now we do either do a strep test or flu test, whatever the case. But since you are done most of it already, so oh, what the heck? I'm just going to submit this 99213. And then we send in the bill. It doesn't go into the insurance right away. It goes to this place called scrubbing. So they actually literally hire people to look at your chart to make sure you can up code. To say, look, you know, that Dr. Fung actually added this sore throat in and he didn't bill for it. And now we're actually going to charge you $400. And you're like, do they get $400? The answer is no, they don't get $400. It's all based on percentage. It's like, you know, like we're in North Carolina, so we have Blue Cross Blue Shield. So if you're a Blue Cross Blue Shield patient, you know, you are, are if you're a client, then you pay Blue Cross Blue Shield premium, then Blue Cross Blue Shield pays the doctor whatever they charge you. But there's a contract between Blue Cross Blue Shield and your doctor or your medical system. And then so the more people you have in the medical system, the more the medical system and said Blue Cross Blue Shield, we have a lot of doctors here. All of them are under our, you know, under our roof. What percent are you willing to pay? Blue Cross Blue Shield says, oh, we'll pay you 30%. And the medical system said, no, we have a lot of doctors. We want 35. Huh. And then, but the key goes is that because it's a percentage wise, but the key goes when you submit that $400, you only get like 35% of that $400. But if you don't have insurance, guess what? They're going to shaft you with $400 bill. And they said, well, that's what we charge you for. Damn. And so and it's all a game. It's all a game. And then the medical group, again, like they're incentivized to scrub and yeah. code properly code up yeah properly meaning up uh, <laughs> not down okay uh, let's just be honest here that's wild because i think every person in that system probably wants good for the end patient but the incentive structure yeah. the money is mm -hmm. forced in one direction that's rough right i mean yeah it's, rough. yeah it's like okay you take your morning 
talk to six people and you get paid 120 bucks or you can crank <laughs> out seven of these make 25 make 3000 bucks and it's I like know. man so because of that because of time constraint and you know not just besides the money but you know they also have this thing called quality measures so what the medical system will talk to blue cross blue shield and say hey you know what we're doing very good with our patients management they said, well, how can you do that? How can you prove to us? So the hospital system will say, look, we have so many diabetics. Look at how good the A1C is by pills. Look at how many hypertensive patients we have also by pills. Look at their cholesterol level. It's also, look, oh, look, a lot of your clients that are seen by our physician's network, their numbers look awesome. So instead of 35%, you need to pay us 40%. But the key goes, it's just a shell game. I just said, what do you mean by shell game, right? So, so for diabetes per se, so we use that as an example. So if an A1C is more, so an average sugar more than nine, if it's 9.1, it's considered uncontrolled. So the key goes is that Every day, the computer system will go through and say, is the patient diabetic? And if the answer is yes, and if the A1C is more than 9.1, they'll say, well, Dr. Fung, you're a bad doctor because the A1C is 9.1. Yeah. I'm like, okay, so I need to get under 9 then. Yes. And then so now you get it to 7. So the next time the computer says, oh, Dr. Fung, awesome. You know, that A1C was 9, now it's 7. So you're doing a good job. So we're going to go to tell Blue Cross Blue Shield, you've done an awesome job with the diabetes now. So Blue Cross Blue Shield will pay you pay us more money, so we'll pay you more money. <laughs> okay. the, the key goes, it doesn't work like that. The key goes, they're going to push insulin. So what happens when you jack up the insulin, the patient's getting fatter, but the A1C comes down, right? Yep. Versus if you get them to change their food habit, doing low-carb intermittent fasting, they're going to lose the weight. They probably wouldn't need their blood pressure medicine anymore. Their cholesterol function probably improve. And then now the A1C is 7. So if you just look at the plain number of A1C at 7 on drugs versus A1C of 7 not on drugs. Completely different. Completely different. Yeah. But in the eyes of the, quote, quality measure, it's the same thing. And it's not. The one who's on drugs, we're going to end up having a heart attack, a stroke, losing the kidney, going to go blind and going to get their foot cut off. And then they're going to say, look, we're doing the best that we can for your client. And that's why it is a progressive disease. And it is not. And then people are like, how come it's not? Because I have put people's diabetes in remission. I've been doing it for three years. So people are like, well, Dr. Fung, the patient came to see you yesterday. The A1C was nine. And today we're doing an audit. And now it's like, it's still high. So you're a bad doctor. I'm like, you barely give me any time to get the A1C down. So I can't be judged. And they said, well, no, because we have to submit the homework to Blue Cross Blue Shield tomorrow. And then because if it's not down, you're a bad doctor. It's just so nearsighted. Damn, that's rough. Because yeah, I can drop your glucose like a lot. If I just jack you with an insulin or jack you with metformin, but that's just a Band-Aid. Like I can, no, I can it, manipulate your biomarkers pretty crazily with anything, right? Yes, yes. Man. Uh, it's sad, but sorry, I was a little bit, um, you know, color about that. No, no, I think that's like super interesting information i mean i've seen some of the structural issues but i think it, uh, this is the first time i've heard some of the you know actual specific details where i think a lot of our listeners would appreciate because i think it's a, kind of a black box honestly for most americans like you just don't know like 
how insurance that your company provides, how, like there's you pay some premium, which again, most companies will cover the premium. So you don't That's even right. know it's like you're, no, you're really paying no. for this. And then doctors kind of do some stuff and you get some tests and yeah. it seems kind of fine because the doctors are usually nice. And then you get an insurance bill and it's like, I guess this kind of works. And then you see politicians talking about Obamacare or Medicare for all. And it's like, how, I, I like, and it's like, I, those sound good. I, I, don't, I don't know how this relates to me. I so know. I think hearing this in terms of the gory details of, huh, I didn't know that medical groups negotiate as kind of a union or a block for the percentage to reimbursement rate for Blue Cross and, and, and Anthem, which we have that in, in California as well. It's kind of interesting. And then like, I guess you get bonuses if you just hit metrics, right? Oh yeah, do do. And it just sounds like these metrics are very, very gameable, right? Like if I want to play, maximize the, you know, hypothetical Dr. Jeffries, like cash book. All right. Like I'm going to just go for these clients that have these things and like figure out the most highest billable insurance code to have the easiest biomarkers to, to manipulate and just bang them out every 10 minutes. That's how a lot of places work is just like you know upcode whatever you do and then see the patient as frequent as possible because the more you see the more you make are doctors cynical i mean do they see this game i mean i'm sure there are some doctors who are more on the sociopathic side which is like hey i'm very smart i go in through medical school there's this weird <laughs> game and it's a pretty crazy system like, and this is me just talking to you. Like, if I want to be yeah. an exploitive person in that system, all right, let me just like look at the insurance coding book, see what is the yeah. highest reimbursable, lowest time uh -huh. thing. And just like, I'm uh -huh. the world expert at doing this procedure and boom, just start racking up money. Are, I mean, are, are people that cynical or they're trying to be as positive as possible within a weird game? On average, I would say majority of doctors are not there to make money. Okay. I mean, I wasn't there to make money. You know, I was there to help patients. I, I went to medical school because I want to truly help patients. But after you go to medical school is that a lot of things that you are taught are just medications. You're taught medication, you're taught procedures, you're taught, taught surgery, and, and that's what you're taught. And then they barely brush. I don't remember. They, obviously, they never talk about insulin resistance for sure. I can swear. It's like four hours of nutrition lecture, right? Like I think that's like something that people tell it's like medical terrible. school. For, yeah. This is the nutrition they teach you. You know, they said, look, you know, um, carbohydrate is uh, has four calories. Protein has four calories. Fat has nine calories. And because it's calories make us fat, so we should eat the the, the high calorie food. So what what what's high calorie food? Fat. The animal yeah. fat, you know, yeah. animal food. So don't eat that. And yeah. then so what do you eat? So nearly three foods: carbohydrate, protein, and fat. If you don't eat the fat, you have to eat the carbohydrate. They said, well, if we have to eat the carb, then you have to eat whole grain. And people are like, well, is whole grain better than white bread? The answer is yes, it is slightly better than the white bread. But if you look at, so that's called glycemic index, how fast that sugar turns into, uh, how fast that food turns to sugar in your bloodstream is very fast if you eat that white bread. But that whole grain bread is still going to turn into sugar, that instant feels going to come out. And then yeah. people are like, well, but they don't think in that. They just say, well, you know, it's the calories, you know, eat less calorie. And then you say, well, so I'm not eating the fat, I'm eating less fat, I'm eating more carb, I'm eating whole grain. But now you're jacking up your insulin. Yep. 
that's why it's a balance. Now you need to exercise to to get rid of that extra calorie. And then so on average, you have to run 20 freaking miles to lose 3,500 calories. And it's like really, really, really far. <laughs> and no one runs 20 miles to lose a pound of 3,500 calories. And by the time, even if you do, and if you live on the standard American diet, you're going to be super hungry. You're going to eat more and then eat all the junk food. And now your your insulin goes back up and now your weight goes back up. And they will blame you for, hey, you know, you didn't exercise to lose the weight. You said, look, I run 20 miles to lose my, my 3,500 calories. And yeah. they said, well, you didn't run far enough. I'm like, it, it just... Uh, I mean, it's beyond me. So. We need more doctors like yourself fighting, you know, and then just changing the culture. I think that's just ultimately more of the politician side, but I think it's like, it's a super complicated system and we just need more educated people, right? I think if individuals feel more empowered to understand their health and take a little bit more responsibility, I think that's like the main thing I want to encourage people to do. Like when I was in my early 20s, I, I just don't think about your health. Like you, no. you just gave up your sovereignty of your body and your health to some doctor, which we, I think you need to trust people, but yes. ultimately you own your own body, you own your own health and you need to just be more educated about that. So you can have a more productive conversation with that said doctor that you trust. That's um, right. And I think that has to be the model for the future where it turns more and more into a conversation amongst interested parties together rather than you are a rat and I'm going to feed you stuff and you listen to me. (laughs) I I, I don't think that model is acceptable in modern society, given the influx of information and just the level of discourse. I I think that model that might've worked in the 1800s where there's such a different level of education and class between people. We're we're in America and it's it's just not like the upper class and lower class and you just follow orders. That doesn't, that doesn't exist anymore. If you really look at the meaning of doctors, we're actually teachers, you know, we're, we're teaching our patients how to be healthy. But, you know, and, and then so, well, so has the other doctors been a bad teacher? We would say no, they haven't been a bad teacher. The two box they have is a low-fat diet, a exercise diet, and a prescription diet, a prescription toolbox. That's all they got. And that's all your teachers are trained in. What else do you expect them to do for you? So if they already tell you everything they need to tell you, I would say, hey, you're a good teacher. But the key goes, they don't have enough two in the toolbox. And the biggest two in the toolbox is how to fix insulin and insulin resistance. And unfortunately, we're not taught in that. And then because we're not taught in that, now we have to learn it on our own. Or you get sick like me and then figuring it out yourself and you get really upset about what you were taught was just like half truths yeah. and now you learn the whole truth and then so yeah keep you know pushing the good fight here so here's the, as we wrap up here what is your personal routines now obviously doing a lot more exercise like what is yes. the hit list for you so right now opening up my clinic it will open up on october 1st we're signing up patients now there's price transparency what you pay is what we do in the office no extra cost. And then so we don't build insurance. And then so I'm getting the website up. I'm getting, you know, the scales in. I'm like that actually do fat analysis, like percent fat analysis. So we get all that in. And then I don't eat breakfast. I wake up, I don't eat, I brush my teeth and then I do my thing. And then sometimes I don't eat lunch. So I eat one meal a day. 
So people are like, well, Dr. Fung, what, you, you can do that? I said, look, I, I haven't been eating breakfast for the last three years. You know, on the weekend, I might eat a late lunch with my kids, but that's it. So I have two meals a day. I don't snack because snacking will dry up your insulin too. Mm-hmm. So, so I eat a low-carb meal. I do intermittent fasting. And about three times a week, I go to the park in the neighborhood. I do my monkey bar thing, you know, like, like Ted Nyman does, you know, <laughs> to try to, you know, get some upper muscle strength. So like calisthenics, are you, so you're doing yeah. a lot of pull-ups. Have you, have you gotten to muscle-ups yet? Uh, no, I haven't. But man, it, it, it's hard. I mean, it takes time to build up those mitochondria. So that's what I do, you know, every two, three, two, three times a week I go and then I exercise and I let my body rest. And then when it's resting, is that autophagy happening? You know, I just tore some of that. So now I'm not eating. The body will tear that down. And when I eat again, the body will put new amino acid and then repair that area. Yeah. So that's longevity right there. And try to get my sleep into. So, so that's important. Yeah. yeah. And you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that a lot of Asian cuisine is, you know, is, is very grain-based. And, yeah. you know, personally growing up with a lot of Asian food, I mean, that's yeah. some of my favorite meals, right? Like, you know, some pho noodles or ramen or how do you deal with that? Obviously, you're we're all humans. So I think yeah. you, I would say un, unless you have a very, very strict health concern, but if you're relatively healthy, yeah. like do you indulge or, or are you very, very disciplined there? We actually went to dim sum over the weekend with my dad. You know, yeah. I wasn't like, hey, where's my shrimp wrap thing? I'm like, hey, I'm going to eat that. Yeah. But the key goes is that we don't go to the restaurant every day. We don't go and eat this high carb food every day. So, and if you do go, you know, feel guilty about it, you know, enjoy it. But just don't eat that every day. And if you eat that every day, then then you get into trouble. So it's kind of like a feast on carb and famine on carb. So I do a lot of famine on carb. So when I'm feasting, I'm not feeling guilty about it. But the key goes that, you know, the standard American diet is like feasting on carb every single day. And they say, well, what's the problem? Like, that's the problem right there. So I don't feel guilty when I go out. I mean, I I eat. I don't try to be an asshole about I'm not eating this. I'm not eating that. I eat it. But I understand that, hey, you know, you put in this extra carb, it's going to lay down your glycogen. You need to fast or you need to exercise to burn your glycogen, but you can't exercise your muscle glycogen. So you really need to fast. So I basically like do one meal a day the next day, trying to empty that glycogen now and trying to do some exercise to burn through that glycogen. So I'm not in the sugary world all the time. I see a very similar journey in myself as well as a lot of people in the community where you go from not understanding the mechanistic approach of what's wrong with the standard western diet and they go super hardcore like <laughs> carbs are the worst thing ever like how dare you eat a cookie so i think i'm more like you now where i have a very strong baseline i'm disciplined around it but i'm not judging people like you got to enjoy life and it's also got to be sustainable and i think that's why a combination of intermittent fasting and low carb is so potent because if you have a little bit of an extra carbohydrate meal you can reduce that load over time through intermittent fasting or just reducing some carb intake or yeah. exercise right like use yeah. that carbohydrate burn through that muscle glycogen through high intensity interval training or something right or just go on a longer mm-hmm. bike ride obviously you you can't just only do that. You also need to control the inputs. But I think you say it really nice. And I think it's important for our listeners to hear, which is that I don't think you and I are saying, hey, you are a failure if you sneak in a little bowl of rice with your family on a weekend. And, and it's like, a, you know, going out together. Because I know food is yeah. like a very important part of 
every culture. It's a full understanding to incorporate this in a in a nice integrated way, where it's not like this thing where yeah, you're the asshole who's just like not partaking socially. Like I don't think that's very sustainable. I think it's very hard to maintain. Yeah. I mean, the the key goes that most of the time is that if you just watch what you eat at home. And be cognizant about what you eat out, and don't eat out if you don't need to. I think that's all you really need to do. But then you need to understand a little bit about the science, though. Yeah. Because if you don't understand the science, then now you'll be you'll be like, wait, I'm doing what you're asking me to do. I'm like, no, you need to understand the science. And then, but you know, and then the key goes that the science come through YouTube, <laughs> the science come, the science come through books, the science yeah. come through Twitter, and then unfortunately, those are not. Big media channels that where people will hear, uh, you know. Well said. So, congrats on starting the clinic. Exciting to see how that goes. I mean, obviously, it's a big move and, and obviously a lot of work to yeah. standing up something new. So, where do people find your information? Where do people find the website? Where do people follow along? I'm very active on Twitter at, at the handle drandyfung.com. I have a website, www.drandyfung.com. You'll find like pricing information. It's very transparent of what you will get from us and what you'll pay us. And then I just started a Facebook low-carb support group like three days ago. And I have like almost 400 people asked to join. And I was like, and it's actually a closed group. And I'm like, Wow, you know, people are actually, you know, wanting to come. And then and then the difference between Twitter and Facebook that I learned was that people write a lot more on Facebook to say, look, you know, I this is what happened to me. I dropped like a hundred plus pounds and this is awesome. You don't see a lot of that on Twitter, I guess, because you know, Twitter is very open and Facebook, especially with the close close group, people feel more um secure. And so so I'm there to support patients, you know, to their journey to better health. Awesome. Yeah, let's definitely stay in touch and see how the world progresses. I think you could probably, I've seen the world really change in terms of how people perceive fasting and carb, low carb diets over the last five years. And obviously, I think you've seen that very similar trajectory where probably three years ago it was like insane. And now it's <laughs> yes. like not that insane. Like we have documentaries and TV crews and more and more media and all these social network groups where people are really sharing positive results. So keep keep it up and keep doing what you're doing. Well, thank you. You know, fight a good fight. And then so I think we'll we'll get there, you know, either fast or slow. Ideally, we want to get there faster just because our population just need a lot of help. Well said. All right. Thanks so much, Andy. Talk to you soon. Thank you, Jim.